Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish seventy years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity, We have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face, as it is to this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, To all Israel, those near and those far off, and all the countries to which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face. To our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws which he set before us by his servants the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, a servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept this disaster in mind and brought it upon us, The Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is to this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because of our sins. And for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem, and your people are a reproach to those, all those around us. Now therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Now, while I was speaking... 
praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, a command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince, who is to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the privilege of you speaking to us. We know, Lord, that this is a privilege not given to all. We are thankful for the joy of hearing your voice and how we pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds. Indeed, as you sent Daniel to make, you sent Gabriel to make Daniel to understand how we pray, you would send your Holy Spirit through your word to make us to understand this, your message. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We come this evening to the second half of Daniel Daniel chapter 9, and as we've just seen, the first half contains this great prayer of Daniel on behalf of the people, a prayer of repentance, a prayer that lingers long over the sins of the people, and as he mourns both for the sin and for the consequences of that sin, as the people of God have been brought low in their desolations and this discipline that God brought to them. And, of course, he is in a, great, a spirit of intercession, that he might intercede for these people. And I hope that we do not soon forget the lessons that we were given in this as we consider this last time. This is the mode of prayer that God blesses. This is the kind of prayer that God will not despise. And as we mentioned, Daniel's prayer is soon answered. In verse 20, now while I was speaking, praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in division at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. So it is this answering of the prayer, even in the midst of his prayer, which is very significant. And as Gabriel explains then in verse 23, at the beginning of your supplication, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. This is the explanation of why Daniel was there. And I think that there is much good news to be found in the message that that Gabriel then gives to Daniel, 
But it begins with the explanation that he gives simply for being sent so very soon, for you are greatly beloved. Now this, this expression is found in the next chapter, Daniel 10, verse 11. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved. And then in Daniel 10, 19, O man greatly beloved, fear not. Well, this is the title tonight. Because you are greatly beloved. That's why Gabriel was sent so very quickly to answer this man Daniel's prayer. The explanation was because he was greatly beloved. And this is the cornerstone truth. Many other things depend upon it, both theologically and also practically speaking. But this is the cornerstone truth that he was greatly beloved. And so it is true with all of God's people throughout all of time. And everything else depends upon it. Now, because of that, because you are greatly beloved, that being the title and subject, then there are these, five, these four things, rather, that are, are true. First of all, that God loves you. I'll explain a little bit more as why that's the case. But number one is God loves you. Number two, God attends to you. Number three, God speaks to you. And number four, God takes away your sin. Because you're greatly beloved, God loves you. He attends to you. He speaks to you. And he takes away your sin. Well, let's begin with this most basic thing, that God loves you. In verse 23, at the beginning of your supplications, a command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. That's the first truth that we get from this, is that God loves you. Now, I know that some of you are saying, is that not a tautology? Is that not when you say that something is, is, is something, that X is X? It's it's the same thing. What more information are you giving? Well, I I would say ordinarily, if you said you are beloved because you are beloved, that that might be a tautology, perhaps. But it's not so in God. It turns out to be the actual deepest, realist, ultimate explanation that God can give and does give for the reason why that we are beloved. You may recall from Deuteronomy 7, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you are more a number than any people. For you were the least of all the peoples, you see. It wasn't because of some aspect that was in them. But he goes on to say in verse 8, but because the Lord loves you. Does that make sense? Again, think about what it says. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you. So he set his love on them and chose them because the Lord loves them. All right? That's the ultimate tautology at the heart of everything for the Christian. And there's nothing behind it. There's nothing that stands behind it other than the sovereign love of God, which he sets on undeserving sinners, his great, wonderful love. It is not that we are good. It is not any other merit. It's not even that we believe that God loves us. And some people think that that is the case, that God started loving them when they believe. That is not what it says, and that is not the truth. It's completely the opposite, we know. This is what we find in 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Because of the great love for which he set on us, then he sent the Lord Jesus Christ, by which we have a gospel. And because he set his love on us, he gave us faith in order to believe. Because he set his love on us, he sent us the gospel. He sent some preacher of the gospel that we might hear it. And all the other things that come from it, it is because he set his love upon us. 
And that's what Colossians 3.12 says. As the elect of God, holy and beloved. That's what we are as the elect of God. We are beloved. Now this was a situation for Daniel. Now imagine then as Daniel in his, his mourning. He is in sackcloth and, ax, uh, and, and ashes here as a, a low point. As he considers in his old age just how, how terribly Israel has been reduced He's crying out to the Lord. Imagine the situation then of hearing from an angelic messenger sent straight from the presence of the holy God. And you remember, that's who Daniel is. Zechariah strangely questions him. You have to wonder at the the, 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 um, audacity to some extent of Zechariah. But he says, then the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and to bring you these glad tidings, which you don't seem to be listening to. Well, that's the same Gabriel who is sent specially to Daniel to declare the glad tidings. And, and the first thing that he says pretty much is, Daniel, I want you to know this. You are a man who is greatly beloved. How much good would that do you? How much encouragement would that do? If, da- if Gabriel were to show up right now and speak to you and say, I want you to know something. I've come directly from the presence of the living God. He gave me a message, and here's what I want you to know. He loves you. Would that do something for you? Brothers and sisters, this is a message for you tonight. This is exactly what he has done. He has sent a message through a messenger to you. This is the message I have been given to declare to you. He loves you. And that is a beautiful thing. If you are in Christ... Tonight, if you have put your faith in Christ, you can know for certain that is true. And I pray that it would be half the encouragement it ought to be. Now, I want to prove, by the way, if, you, if, if any thought in your mind is saying, oh, I'm not so sure that this really applies to us in the same sense. Well, let me just read to you from Ephesians 1.4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world... That we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. Okay, so if you connect up all of that chain, you know that there's a 100% equivalence between the elect between and believers, those who are adopted, and those who are beloved. All those things are true. If, if you are in Christ, then that means that you are elect. And if you are elect, that means that you are beloved. All these things are absolutely true. You are beloved of God, greatly beloved. So that's the first thing that's true, you, that God loves you. And secondly, God attends to you. That's what people who love one another do. He, they're attentive, aren't they? God is like that. And so as we think of that same very section, while I was speaking, praying, While he was even praying, God is not slack. He is not forgetful. He's not negligent. And then this man, Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to take his time and do some other errands along the way? No. Being caused to fly swiftly, this this highest ranking of the angels, was being caused to fly swiftly because the Lord was attentive to the prayer of his beloved child. And there's, he said, don't, don't spare the petrol, Gabriel. Make your way quickly. Somebody, my beloved child, my, the man greatly beloved, whom I love, needs your help, and you need to go quickly. 
And he informed me and said, Daniel, I have come now forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you. At the very beginning. He was not slow in the slightest. Because Daniel is beloved, God listens to his prayers. And I hope that we do not take this for granted. God does not listen to everyone's prayers. We should appreciate the privilege that it is to be heard of God, to have access to the throne of grace. Proverbs 15.29 says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. You see that contrast? He's far from the wicked. He doesn't listen to their prayer. If they ask that God would be, bless them and give them good things and all the rest of them, he's not listening. Now, of course, if, they, if there's a prayer of faith, he listens to that because he is the one who's granted that. And it is a work of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit that someone would put their faith in Christ. But as for the sort of prayers that he listens to us for, he's not listening to them. And so we need to realize that because we are beloved, God listens to our prayers. Now, you, you might say, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Uh, that's not me. Well, thankfully, I'm pretty sure this is true in the sense of the imputed righteousness of, of Christ. Otherwise, it wouldn't be true of anyone. Now, God was willing to send aid speedily to his beloved child. And this is the larger principle that is taught elsewhere. We'll eventually get, Lord willing, to Luke uh, 18. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with him? I, this is, of course, the, the uh, parable of, or the, the illustration of uh, the importunate widow. I tell you that he will avenge him speedily. See? Speedily. We may not believe it, and, and he understands, though he bears long with him. And we know that the Lord is long-suffering to his people. But from God's perspective, the word that he declares to us is that he comes to us, he aids us, he sends help to us speedily. This is the heart of God towards his people. Like a loving parent attentive to the cry of their young child, he's not, he does not turn a deaf ear to us, but he hears our prayers. Exodus 3, 6 says, Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This is, of course, the, the angel of the Lord speaking in the burning bush to Moses. And here's what he says. Moses hid his face, for he's afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Now we know, of course, that he sent his servant Moses to do so. He sent a mediator. He sent an intercessor. He sent a redeemer. But actually, the Lord himself came down in the form of the pre-incarnate Christ, the form of the angel of the Lord. He says, I myself have come down to make sure this thing is done and to do it myself. Because he heard the voice of his people crying out. He was attentive to them. Now, what was the aid that Daniel particularly needed in this case? Well, of course, he was praying on behalf of the nation. We'll speak of that after this. But most immediately, it was understanding. And so that brings us to our third point. That God loves us, he's attentive to us, and he speaks to us. Verse 22, and he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. Skill, in this case, to understand the word of God and its implications. Uh, 
This is what Daniel stood in need of. This is what Daniel asked for. And this is what he received. And so let me just give you a a summary then of the doctrine of illumination. Something that I think we're uh, sometimes a little bit too um, forgetful of. Uh, this, this, we're rightly understanding of the doctrine of, of inspiration by which we understand that this entire word of God is verbally breathed out by, by God himself. There's not a single error in it. It's completely as God would have it. And therefore, we, we, we have an idea of the, the sacredness and absolute perfection of the word of God. But sometimes we're, we may not understand that there's another element of it. And that is that God has to illumine our minds and hearts to receive its truth. We never come to the word of God and say, I know I can understand it because I'm intelligent enough or I have enough education or or whatever. That is not the way it is at all. We will not understand a single word apart from the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And so the doctrine of illumination is given to us in the Confession 1.6. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. They're necessary. And so our prayers before on the on Sunday or Saturday night, our prayers in the morning, our prayers before the service, my prayer of illumination before the sermon—they're not just for show. Apart from these things, not a single one of us would understand anything of the Word of God, anything savingly, anything necessary for our salvation. And so we we must understand that God is the one who gives us the skill to understand in His illumination. Now, beyond that point. I would say as God speaks to us, we have to understand that this is a part and parcel of his love for us. Okay? God is a communicative being. He is the precise opposite of the, the silent clock-making God, the silent clock-making God of, of deism that simply sets things in motion and lets them run. God is silent in that idea and we are supposed to figure things out by reason. It's the opposite of that. God is very communicative And he speaks to us at all times. Yes, to the the creation itself. We cannot even escape from his creation. The creation declares the glories of God. But more particularly through his word and spirit. He speaks to us. And you see the reason why is because he loves us. And we're not just speaking in terms of mere data. He's not just transmitting to us something. And some people think that. Uh, when my, my understanding fails, that's when I need recourse to learn something from God. Ordinarily, I'm off in my room somewhere doing what I need, but every once in a while I need to know something from God and then I'll come out and ask him a question. That is not the situation of God's communication to us. He loves us and therefore will have conversation with us. That's, of course, the theology of, of Edwards, and I think it's reflective of biblical truth. What is the natural thing for, for human beings as we love one another? It's we communicate. That's, of course, the, li- the lifeblood of any loving relationship is communication, is conversation. And some of us who are more rationally minded or a little bit more uh, overly cerebral, they say, well, I don't happen to have anything particularly to, to discuss or to learn or anything like that. But, of course, the right response to those who might love us is to say, that isn't the point. 
you interact with someone, you hold conversation simply because you love them and are communicating not only the knowledge itself but the love that goes along with it. That is what God does with us. He speaks to us because he loves us and he holds conversation. And the greatest thing of all things that we'll have in heaven is unrestricted, permanent, wonderful conversation with the Lord Jesus Christ. The problem is, of course, in this world that it's intermittent. We hear from him on the Lord's day, perhaps. And sometimes days we get it more than others. Sometimes Satan just steals that word right away from us. We're not even hearing it. We're not even listening. But other times it sinks in just a little bit. And we get a little bit of glimpse and we say, oh, the Lord is speaking to me. And we have a little bit of response in our worship, a little bit of response in our prayer. But then in heaven, one day it'll be a perfect speaking conversation like we have with the very closest of our friends, with our husband or wife, with our children. And there'll be no interruption and nothing to get in the way of that, no sin whatsoever. God speaks to you because he loves you. Now, fourthly, God takes away your sin. It says in verse 24, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. That's quite an agenda, isn't it? And I, I do not attempt to speak in complete detail on these things, not even beginning with all the ways in which this prophecy could be understood. But let me just, just give you a basic outline that suffice to say that most of the Old Testament prophecies have at least two and sometimes three elements of fulfillment, parts of being fulfilled. Okay, We get into big trouble when we say that they can only have one fulfillment at one point in history. It ordinarily does not act that way. I'll give you a paradigm. When, um, when Jesus is, is speaking you know, in Galilee, and he opens up to Isaiah, and he reads, and he says, this day this is fulfilled in your hearing. And you say, it couldn't possibly be, because the rest of that prophecy is the end of the world. What is he talking about? Well, quite clearly, there is a, a twofold uh, fulfillment of that prophecy. And, and Jesus knew where to stop in the midst of that, because a portion of that was fulfilled then, and a portion yet remained to be fulfilled. So at least two, sometimes three. Sometimes, for instance, in this prophecy of 70 weeks, it may well be that some of this was fulfilled, for instance, in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, this uh, horrible blasphemer who ran roughshod over the land of Israel uh, <clears throat> in the time between the Testaments. We know that some other part of that was certainly fulfilled in the time of Christ, of, of, as he being the most holy anointed, as he being put to death, as he being put to, as we're going to speak of, an end to sin in all these various ways. But we know there yet remains a sense in which the final fulfillment is on the day of judgment, on the second coming. Okay, so that's the way we take these things. Now, let's just think about what he says. To finish the transgression and to make an end of sins. That is very good news. Again, consider the content of Daniel's prayer. It was for the many sins of the people. It was for these many sins that were endangering their situation before the Lord. It was for these sins that they had been cast out of the land. What wonderful news then for Daniel to know that there was soon enough to come in a time when all that sin was going to be dealt with finally, permanently. No possibility of anything happening again like the Babylonian captivity. A very thought then of finishing transgression, making an end of sins. Don't you want to see an end of sin? These are blessed words indeed. 
Now here, I would say again, there are different ways in which that can be taken. We certainly look forward to the day in which there will be no more sin actually committed in history. Uh, uh, ourselves, we look greatly look forward to being free entirely from all sin in heaven. But certainly I think that the central fulfillment of this is in the cross, specifically in the cry of John 19.20, Tadalestai. It is finished. That was a finishing of the penalty for the sin of God's people. This is what Messiah accomplished for us on the cross. He said, it is finished. He made an end of sin for us. And it is there on us no longer. We know that though we may yet sin, each and every one of the sins of God's people have been paid for in totality. They have been finished. They have been dealt with. And therefore God, in our justification, it is as if we have never sinned at all. These sins have been done away with. And related to that, of course, is in the further statement to make reconciliation for iniquity because it's how an end was brought to sin. The reason why an end was brought to sin was because of this reconciliation. And that is further explained in verse 26. After the 26 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And that speaks of Christ's atoning work, of laying down his life on the cross for us. And it was not on his own behalf. It wasn't because he was a sinner, but for our sakes. He was put to death for the sins of the people. And then he brings in everlasting righteousness. And let us not forget that part of salvation. You see, not only did Christ pay the penalty for our sin, he set in motion things so that we might be as holy as he is holy. This great work of sanctification. Let's not shortchange the gospel. Let's not shortchange the reality of our salvation. Not only is the penalty paid for, not only are we justified, but he is going to sanctify us. He really is making us righteous. He really is making us holy. That is the work of Christ upon us. And what good news again for Daniel is he looks at his wicked people that have so turned away from the Lord. And he looks forward and and Gabriel says, no, there's going to be a time when God's people, you see, their sin will be dealt with in in a definitive sense on the cross. And then in naturality, they're going to be made more and more righteous and holy over time as they're made this perfect bride of Christ. That's a beautiful thing. And for those who wish that they were involved in some great work, some great project, I want you to know you are. Inasmuch as you are being sanctified, inasmuch as you are being made more holy day by day, as you're obedient to the word, as you grow in holiness, you are participating in the bringing in of everlasting righteousness. This is God's project on you. And this is the wonderful work that we are part of. Well, these are, the three, these are the four things. Many more could be said. But because we are greatly beloved, we're, we, God loves us. God is attentive to us. He speaks to us. And he takes away our sin. And the first application of this is quite simply to make sure that you are beloved. Because everything rides on that. It, it's, it's so crucial. We have to make sure about that. It only works, all these things only work if you are in fact one of God's beloved people. Now, what marks out the people who, who may not, people perhaps who have heard the gospel but are not yet believers? Well, I'm sure that there are some who reject it on the intellectual level. They say, I just can't believe this gospel and I won't believe it. But I think more common among those who go to church is a certain reticence, an unwillingness to, to throw themselves on Christ. And they're still hanging on to themselves. 
Listen to the confession's description in Confession 10.2. The effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, who is altogether passive therein, until being quickened and is being made alive and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. I love that word, to embrace the grace offered in the gospel. That is what I am giving to you. What is it that you may not have done? And I say embrace the grace that is offered you in the gospel. Not to keep it at arm's length. Christ has died. Christ has risen. He offers you eternal life as a gift. And this is the grace that you may embrace. And I invite you to do so. But of course, most of you say, praise God, I've done that. I have embraced this gospel of grace. And so for you, I would say, don't ever forget that you are beloved. The, there's, we must remember this great truth that perhaps above all else, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And we know that from the very fact that we are believers, that we are beloved of God, elect of him, greatly beloved, so much that there is not one single thing that he would withhold from us, not one single thing that he would not do for us. What exactly are you waiting for him to do to show his love for you? What gift do you want apart from his own beloved son, to his body to be broken for you and his blood to be shed, to, to pass out the Holy Spirit to be part of you? To indwell you so you're not orphans in this life. And what is he doing right now? Christ is preparing a place for you that he might live with you in eternity. Don't forget that you're beloved. And so I ask, particularly I think for us in this congregation, why then the anxiety? Why the insecurity? You know, in families very often when, when such things happen, it's because the children are not sure that their parents love them. Well, let me now play Gabriel on, on behalf for the children, for the young people and children in, in the congregation. Let me now play the part of Gabriel, because I've spoken to all of your parents. I know them very well. And I want you to know something. You are greatly beloved. You are greatly beloved of your parents. Do you believe that? Do you understand that? Nod your heads. Nod your heads. Say, yes, I believe that. I am greatly beloved of my parents. They have said so in every way they know how, and I believe them. And I want you to believe that as well. And therefore, you need not be insecure. You stand in the greatest security imaginable. Your parents love you. But we know that that is, of course, not the case in society generally. And that is why anxiety and insecurity are rampant. All the divorce in our society means that people are bereft of permanent relationships. They have turned away from God, the only source of any permanent love that is not fragile or temporary. And therefore, we see all the people around us living very anxious, tenuous, fearful lives. That's the way they live. We understand why they live that way. Why do you live that way? What's your excuse? As a church, what's our excuse? Did you forget that you're beloved? You know, I think that liberal theology has done a great disservice because they go around saying God loves you to everyone, even those who spit in Christ's face and trample on his word. 
then we start to, those words lose their power. They don't have much authority for us. Well, they need to. All right? When we understand the truth of these things, they need to have great authority for us. God loves his people in a categorically different way than those he passes by. Categorically different way. What does Jesus say? What does Christ say to us? Have you ever read the Song of Solomon? Song of Songs? You ought to. Song uh, 115, the beloved. This is Christ. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. Chapter 2-2. Like a lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. Chapter 4-1. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Chapter 6, verse 4. O my love, you are as beautiful as Tisra, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn your eyes away from me, for they have overcome me. Turn your eyes away from me, because they have overcome me. Christ is not just minorly in love with us. He says that he is overcome with the great love with which he has for his church, his people, you. Do you understand? You are greatly beloved. And the Lord speaks to us. He speaks to his own beloved. Romans 1, 7. Those who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Grace and peace to you from God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to understand that your situation could not be any more secure than what it is. Nothing is too good for you. There's no expense spared. The very universe itself, have you thought of this? The very universe itself is just a place that God has made so that he can interact with you and speak to you and be united with you. Right? God loves you. And you should be secure and without anxiety and without fear because of that. Thirdly and finally, we ought to worship. Towards the end of that wonderful Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 13. This is the beloved speaking. This is Christ. You who dwell in the gardens, the companions listen for your voice. Let me hear it. You see, because he loves to speak to us. He loves us. That's why he speaks to us. And you know what? He wants to hear our voice in reply. He loves us. It is a two-way conversation. And we should worship him. That's why we lift our voice in the songs of praise that we have in the psalms and in the hymns. We have this opportunity to speak our voice lovingly to our Savior, to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the triune God. And we do so in prayer. He wants to hear our voice. Let us not withhold our voice from him. Let's pray. Our great God, loving Heavenly Father, Lord, why would we ever be anxious when we have such things set before us? It is truly not just as if, but every bit as good, if not more so, than that an angel from heaven should be sent to us to give us this special message that we are greatly beloved of the living God. As truly we are, and your whole word declares it to be. The Holy Spirit reinforces these things in our hearts and our minds. And Heavenly Father, forgive us for the ways in which therefore we have been anxious as if no one loves us. 
fearful as if you were to drop us tomorrow. Lord, you have set your love upon us, not for anything that we ever had at one time or anything that we can lose, but rather, Lord, because you love us, you love us, you are attentive to us, you speak to us, and you have taken away our sins, and we are thankful, Lord, for the perfect security by which we have in these things. And we pray that these things would be written deeply upon us, stamped on our hearts, written with indelible ink, and that we'd never forget them. And we pray, Lord, indeed, that we'd respond in loving worship. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.